Als verantwortlicher Gemeindeleiter schreibe ich an meinen Freund Gaius, mit dem ich durch die Wahrheit verbunden bin. Liebe Gaius, ich hoffe, dass es dir gut geht und du an Leib und Seele so gesund bist wie in deinem Glauben. Ich habe mich sehr gefreut, als einige Brüder zu mir kamen und berichteten, wie treu du zu Gottes Wahrheit stehst und dass du dein Leben ganz von ihr bestimmen lässt. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. So indeed, you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a matter worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers into the truth. This is God's word. I would like to introduce to you our speaker this morning, Pastor uh, Tom Steller. Pastor Tom was recruited uh, back in 1980 uh, by Pastor John Piper uh, to go to Minneapolis, Minnesota and work with him there uh, to work at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Uh, I didn't tell Tom when he first told me this, uh, but he heard it in the first service that he was, he was kind of recruited by John Piper in 1980, and I was born in 81. So I'm not sure how that made feel, but we're here to support you now. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tom had, uh, in his tenure at Bethlehem Baptist Church, 18 of those years, he was the missions pastor at Bethlehem um, and currently pastor for leadership development. Uh, Tom has been married to Julie, a wife of 40 years. They have six children, five boys, uh, or five, excuse me, I almost got that wrong. That's different. Five girls, one boy. He, he uh, talked about it as five weddings um, to pay for. Uh, but five girls, one boy. Um, one of the reasons I'm excited to have uh, Tom with us this morning, uh, some of you guys have may, familiar, may be familiar with Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a missions book written by John Piper. Uh, has been a massively influential uh, book in the missions world. Um, I read that in college um, and never really noticed um, when I read through it uh, the afterword. The afterword is written by our speaker this morning, Tom. And coming into this role, transitioning into this role of local and global outreach about three years ago, I picked that book up again, reread it, and this time, uh, not like the lazy college student I was at the time, I read the entire thing. Um, and to this day, that afterword is probably one of the most influential chapters I've read on missions since I've been in this role. It is a nice little chapter, and I highly commend it to you if you have that book and if you don't purchase the book. 
Um, but it really shaped my thoughts on how I was going to uh, work into this role as pastor in local global outreach. So I'm really excited uh, to hear from Tom, and I got to hear for the first service. So I can affirm it's good. You're going to like it. So um, will you join me in welcoming Pastor Tom Steller? It's a joy to be here. It was a blessing to be at the missionary prayer gathering yesterday and, and just to, to see the, the culture that God has, has created here. I can tell that the, the missionaries really have a lot of affection for you as a congregation, that you have cared for them well over the years, and, uh, and that your vision for the nations is strong. So I just want to encourage that this morning. And what I want to do this morning is basically three things. I want to share a little bit about my own personal journey into this missionary mindset that has been um, held up in this conference. Um, so my own personal journey. And then I want to talk about a key passage of Scripture that has shaped this missionary mindset. And then finally, I want to tell a story that rocked my world and expanded my missionary mindset. So I hope to accomplish those three things. And a good question to ask is when someone comes up and speaks is, you know, how did they get there? Why, why did this happen? And a way to phrase a question is, what's a, an altar boy like me doing as a Baptist pastor speaking here in Chicago about missions? That's not something I ever anticipated. Um, that I would go in this direction growing up. And, uh, but certain things happened, one of which is that when I was 17 years old, the, the gospel of the glory of Jesus um, just broke into my life um, after years of rebellion and indifference and all kinds of trouble and getting arrested for shoplifting and drugs and alcohol and all those things. God rescued me. And, uh, and I um, ended up at Bethel College as a brand new believer and started um, studying the Bible very meticulously. John Piper was my professor, and uh, just his devotion and his um, commitment to read the text just proposition by proposition um, transformed my life because I saw coming out of the pages of Scripture a picture of a glorious God. And, uh, and the beauty of his son and the beauty of his plan of redemption and um, just, just grabbed me. And I knew I wanted to give my life to the gospel. And so a few years later, after I went to seminary, or while I was in seminary, I got a fateful um, message from John Piper where he, he said, I feel, I feel irretrievably called to leave teaching and go into pastoral ministry. Am I crazy? And I said, yes. Um, and, uh, but then three months later, he said, um, church in downtown Minneapolis called Bethlehem Baptist Church has invited me to come and be their pastor. Would you want to come and labor with me? And I prayed about it, 30 seconds at least, and, uh, and knew that this is where I was supposed to be, and my wife was more sober-minded, so we had to think and pray about it a long time. But we, we, uh, we accepted the call and came, and uh, 
lived in the duplex that the Pipers owned and just a few blocks from the church in a very um, troubled urban neighborhood. It was the highest crime neighborhood in the city at the time. And uh, the church was just a, a seven-minute walk away. And uh, we came into this historic, uh, wonderful Baptist church that had a, a missions-minded history. There's no question about that. But by the time we got there, everything was at low ebb. And, uh, and neither John nor I were especially missions-minded. Um, if you, if you're, uh, you love Jesus, you're going to love missions. You know, so, of course, we cared about missions, but not enough to put it on our front burner. Um, our goal was just to touch as many students as we could and touch these neighborhoods with the gospel. And, and, uh, but three years into our ministry, the church was beginning to revive, and, and uh, we were going to add another pastoral staff. And we got a letter from one of our uh, two of our members, a couple that were preparing to go to the Gola people in Liberia. And they asked the question, they said, how can you justify adding another full-time pastor in a church that already has two full-time pastors in a city that has a thousand churches in light of the world situation? And then they proceeded to kind of lay out in this letter, lay out the world situation um, I'd gone to Fuller Seminary, which was the mecca of mission study in those days, and I found a way around the one required missions course. So this was my missions education. But they said something very provocative and compelling that, that um, began to arrest me. They said that when, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, when you hear the word nation in Scripture, don't um, think first and foremost of country. And, uh, but rather think of it as the Cherokee Nation or the Ojibwe Nation or the Dakota Nation. In other words, don't think about, eth- don't think about politically defined countries, which there are about 193. Don't think about those so much, but rather think about people that are, are united by language and culture. And uh, think about what they call ethno-linguistic groupings of people. And uh, I'd never thought about the world that way. So instead of there being 193 countries, which at that time we had heard that the, the gospel had been, the church had been planted in every single country on the face of the earth, maybe not Albania at the time. So we thought, let's focus right here in Minneapolis and let's just focus here and let all the other countries, um, the churches there, reach their countries. But uh, when I realized that, no, it's ethno-linguistic groupings of people, all of a sudden I I realized that the gospel was far from um, penetrating every country. And, uh, for example, a country that my wife and I went to serve in for seven months, um, Cameroon, it's one country in the United Nations but there's 278-plus ethno-linguistic groupings of people in that one country. And each group is a nation in biblical terms. Each group needs to hear the gospel in terms that they can understand. And so now we learn from this letter that uh, there are maybe 17,000 people groups in the world. And of those 17,000, um, 7,000 remain unreached, without sufficient resources to reach their own people, without outside cross-cultural witness. 
And of those 7,000, um, 1,510 are considered unengaged peoples who they're not even targeted. There, there's no missionary work there, no missionary work planned for them. And, uh, and so when you hear the command to go and make disciples of all the nations, all of a sudden you get concerned. And so that's, this letter that they sent to us was very troubling. I wasn't converted yet to world Christianity. That happened a little while later. You can call it a conversion, but for me it felt like a conversion. I was not able to sleep one night, and uh, so I got up and I took my eight-track cassette tape um, and uh, fed it into my pop-up old stereo, and it was uh, John Michael Talbot, who used to be a rock and roll singer and was converted um, and, uh, and just sang songs for the Lord. And he started singing a song that said, all the nations on earth will adore you. All the nations on earth will adore you. And when I heard that song being sung, the new information that nation equals people groups, and I thought of the vast number of people groups that have yet to embrace the gospel, to hear the gospel, that, that uh, for some reason I call it the great connection, that if I love the glory of God, which by God's grace I did since my conversion, and I loved to worship, and I wanted to win other people to worship Jesus Christ, all of a sudden it hit me that if I love the glory of God and I want to see worshipers raised up, I must be concerned about these unreached peoples and unengaged peoples with the gospel. And it just came on me so strong, I just started to weep and weep and weep. And uh, I don't know if you ever had an experience like that where you just, what, what's happening here? And, uh, and the scripture came to mind, you know, of, of Isaiah 55, and, and Isaiah met the Lord, and, 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 uh, and, and Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And so I was just interpreting this, that maybe this was a missionary call. And, uh, and so then I began asking, what would I do? Um, and I figured, well, I loved Greek and Hebrew, and I loved the Bible. Maybe I would be a Bible translator. And so the rest of the night, I started thinking about being a Bible translator and uh, going to Papua New Guinea to, to uh, take one of these un untranslated languages. Meanwhile, my, my wife, Julie, is sleeping peacefully while this is happening, and uh, she wakes up the next morning, and I tell her what happened, and, and, uh, and I said, I think God is calling us to be Bible translators in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> and uh, and she, she had the perfect response. She said, Tom, if that's what God wants us to do, we'll do it. But inside, I think she was thinking, this too will pass. <laughs> so... But a few days later, I went and I talked. I, I sought out someone who was a real missions leader. And I just explained to him. I just told him my story and this experience that I had. And, and he just said, praise God, that God, through his Holy Spirit, has touched you very deeply. And it could be a missionary call. He said, but don't assume that that's what it is. It could be that you will have more influence staying right there at Bethlehem and mobilizing people for missions than if you yourself went. And that really was a prophetic word to me. And, uh, and so I've stayed there for 38 years. 
and have had the privilege of, of influencing people and watching people go out for the sake of the name. Um, so that was, that was October of 1983. November of 1983, just a month later, um, we were having our missions conference. Dangerous things happen at these missions conferences, okay? And we were having our missions conference, and uh, that year, every, every, John Piper had been there for four years. He never preached a missions sermon because they always had a guest speaker come in. But this year, that speaker fell through, and so they asked if he would be able to speak on missions. And he had been preaching a series on Christian hedonism uh, called Desiring God, and, uh, and the, which is fundamentally that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, that it's not wrong for us to pursue our own happiness. Um, and so he was preaching that sermon. He said, okay, I'll just add a, another sermon to that series. And he called it Missions, the Battle Cry of Christian Hedonism. And that sermon was like a match that got um, lit and put into a congregation that was like kindling. And, uh, and it was really the birthing of a, a missionary renewal at Bethlehem that uh, has been sustained to this day by God's grace. And, uh, and so just the joy of, of watching um, God work in people's hearts. Um, a lot of people started talking about missions in March of 1984. Uh, we decided we should get to know who these people are and try to encourage them. And so we invited them over to uh, the Piper home, and we called it Missions at the Manse. Manse is the, pa the pastor's parsonage. And, uh, and that night, we thought maybe there'd be 20 or 30, and 90 people showed up in their little tiny living room. And uh, we just began asking them, what's God putting on your heart? How, how is your heart being stirred? And, uh, and when the last one left that night, John and I just looked at each other and we said, something's happening here. And uh, we either need to get on board or at least get out of the way. And it wasn't, we weren't the cause of this missions movement. We were more the victims of it ourselves. And, uh, and so we then saw um, just... Uh, this movement happened. And in the next month, they made me pastor for missions, and, uh, which was really silly because I had never been a missionary. And I found the one way, one way around my missions course at Fuller Seminary. And, and, uh, but God um, just did something wonderful. And so a lot of people have been sent out since then. And uh, um, we just marvel at the privilege it is to be involved in a church like Calvary where you are sending people to the nations. So um, I could say a lot more about that journey, but uh, I want to now look at a text with you. And this is a key passage of Scripture that um, has shaped my missions-mindedness. And there's many. And yet the amazing thing is to read the Bible when your eyes are open to missions and you see that that really this missionary thrust is the golden thread that just goes from, from Genesis all the way to, to Revelation. And uh, where God promises to Abraham, he's going to make him a father of many nations. And in him, all, in his seed, all the nations will be blessed. And then you see all the way into Revelation and, and the, the, um, the veil is, is, is pulled aside and you, you see that there are worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
And then you go to the middle of redemption where Jesus Christ himself came and he died and it says in Revelation that he purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you just see this weave all the way through scripture. So missions is not just one department among many. It's, it really is the, it's the, the purpose of God in history is to extend his goodness and his glory to every people on the face of the earth. And so somehow... Um, we want to be a part of that. And so here's a text that, that highlights this, and, uh, but also shows that um, I'm not trying to paint a picture where if you're not a missionary, you feel guilty. In other words, if you're really a strong Christian, you'll be a missionary. That's just not the way Scripture portrays it at all, is that there's not first and second class citizens but what is important is that we have this mindset that our heart beats with God's heart for his purpose to fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. And so let me call our attention to 3 John 1 to 8 and just to kind of unpack it as much as we can in a brief period of time. And uh, we already heard it read in German and in English, but I'll, I'll read some parts of it and make some comments along the way. Um, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. First of all, this is written by the Apostle John. And towards the end of his life, he was the one apostle that, never, that didn't get martyred, didn't have an easy life, was, was exiled on the Isle of Patmos and all kinds of suffering and so forth. But he's now writing um, in the latter part of his life. And he's writing to a young man named Gaius. And I just want you to... to uh, just get into his life. I mean, just try to think of this crinkly old apostle, okay, writing, and what excites him. So the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved. I mean, just all these terms of endearment. You just can imagine what kind of apostle he was. Beloved, I pray that all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Just stop there for a minute. That uh, there's something happened that has caused John to write to Gaius and to acknowledge that Gaius's soul is prospering. He prays in 2A that, that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. So maybe Gaius is sick, maybe his business isn't going well or whatever. Maybe he's not experiencing prosperity at every level of his life. But at the fundamental level, it says, as your soul is prospering. So there's something about Gaius that John heard that has caused Gai has John to think that Gaius's soul is prospering. And that just gets me right away. I mean, we live in a culture where prosperity is just thrust upon us and, and we want to be prosperous and many of us are able to be prosperous and... And yet we all know that the American dream prosperity does not really correspond to the deepest yearnings of the heart. And so when he talks about a soul prosperity, it should get our attention. Because that's what we really want. We don't want just a nice car and a nice house if our soul is shriveling up. Our soul is, our soul is empty. Our soul is... is Anchorless, our, our soul is, is not going in a direction. 
And so when he talks about a prospering soul, it just gets my attention. Because I, I want my soul to prosper. And Gaius' soul was prospering. So let's find out what was making his soul prosper. And verse 3 begins with a four. So he's going to argue for it. And I think he's arguing for the fact that his, he's going to give some, some substance to, to help us understand why his soul is prospering. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. So the essence of, of the soul prosperity is it's, the soul is, is being governed by truth. I, and, and, and you know from, from Johannine writings that truth is not just a series of propositions, which it definitely is, but truth is ultimately a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so as Gaius heard these brothers um, bearing witness to Gaius's truth, um, John said, Gaius's soul is prospering, and I want to write a letter to him to encourage him. Okay, John, you know, somehow Gaius must have been one of John's disciples at some point because uh, in verse 4 he says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. So Gaius was one of John's spiritual children, I believe. That at some point John and Gaius's life had interacted. John had poured into Gaius. Gaius goes to another church. John is in Asia Minor probably. And these brethren come and they tell a story about Gaius and, and John's old, crinkled, apostolic face just breaks into a smile. And it's always good to ask what makes an old apostle smile, isn't it? And uh, so we got to find out what it is. So anyway, he heard this report and he writes to Gaius to encourage him and, and, uh, and to acknowledge that his soul is prospering and I pray that everything else will prosper for you. But now verse 5, he begins to tell us more. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers. Interesting. So these brethren that that had come in contact with Gaius, reported back to John. Um, they were strangers to Gaius, and Gaius acted faithfully to them. Who are these guys? Verse 6a, and they bear witness to your love before the church. So Gaius was probably at the midweek prayer meeting or something, or John was probably at the big midweek prayer meeting. These brothers come, and they testify before the church of Gaius's love for them, John goes home, writes his letter. Who are these guys? Verse 6b begins to tell us. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That little word for send is a technical term in the New Testament. I think it only occurs nine times, that particular word for send. There's several words for send. But this particular Greek word occurs nine times, and each time it's in the context of getting a Christian worker from point A to point B, helping them. And, uh, and so 
he says to, to guys, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So these brothers who are strangers um, need to be sent on their way, to be sent on their journey, and not in any old kind of way, but it says in a manner worthy of God. This is getting kind of heavy, kind of mysterious almost. And then um, 7b, or seven, and verse 7 gives the, the reason why they should be sent this way, sent in a manner worthy of God. And I think verse 7 is perhaps the best definition of missionary in the New Testament. It says, for they, that is these brethren who are strangers, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. These brethren are those who went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus says, freely you receive, freely give, don't sell the gospel. Just go out and preach freely, and pour yourself out. And, uh, and so these, I think, this is the best definition of missionary in, that we have in the Bible. As someone who goes out for the sake of the name. You can go out for a lot of reasons. For humanitarian concerns, which is really vital and important. Um, for compassion reasons, which is crucial. Uh, maybe for love of adventure, which is part of being made in the image of God and all those kinds of things. But fundamentally, a missionary is someone who is, has gone out for the sake of the name. They are motivated by this overwhelming delight in the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ through his life, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his promise to return, set up a new heavens and a new earth, that a missionary is someone who has been consumed by who Jesus is. And that's what impels them. They go out for the sake of the name. And since they go out for the sake of the name, you will do well to send them in a manner worthy of God. This isn't to exalt the missionary that somehow they're God, but you send them out in a manner worthy of God to show your value of the name of God. So both the goer and the sender are united by the same motivation. The goer goes out for the sake of the name. The sender sends in a manner worthy worthy of God. And then it goes one more step, verse 8. Therefore, since they go out for the sake of the name, since they accept nothing from the Gentiles, and they're human, so they still need to eat and all those kinds of things, therefore, we ought to support such people, a certain kind of people. What kind of people? kind of person that goes out for the sake of the name. And we ought to support them. And when you hear the word ought in Scripture, sometimes, I don't know, in our, our, our culture today, to, the oughts and shoulds sound like legalism. And it's, there's no command in Scripture that is legalism. It's just the obedience of faith that if you trust in the goodness of God, you just want to go wherever he tells you to go. Because you know that he's got your best interest in mind. He's got your deepest happiness in mind. So if he says, therefore, we ought to support such people, 
I say, Lord, bring them in. Help us to know. Help us to send them in a manner worthy of God. One last thing it says, the purpose. And this is what unites the goer and the sender together. This is why there aren't second-class citizens, first-class citizens of missionary and everybody else. We're together in this greatest cause in the universe. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. That just so struck me, that we are fellow workers with the truth. And so whether you go or whether you stay and send, that's a secondary issue. What matters is that our hearts are are caught up into this very purpose of God and that our love for God means that we love who he is. He is gracious and compassionate. And we love what he's about in this world. We love what he's up to. And what he's up to that we learned in Genesis and see all the way through Scripture and climaxing in Revelation, what he's up to is to exalt his name among the nations, to to break into this messy world and every tribe and tongue and people and nation and to bring redemption from this extensive fallenness. He, He is in the business of redeeming and winning a people for himself. And that's what I want to give my life to. Whatever form it takes. Whatever form it takes. And the beautiful thing about our time now is that um, some, of, some of you, God has already called or will be calling to leave what's familiar and to go far away into an unreached people or an unengaged people and get into a a world that you never dreamed imaginable. But others, God has given us a privilege right now. He has drawn the nations into our doorstep. And it's an amazing thing what he's doing in the world. That unreached peoples and unengaged peoples are moving into our universities, into our colleges, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces. In Minneapolis, um, God has brought one of the largest unreached people groups in mass numbers into the Twin Cities, the Somali people. Somalia is one of the largest unreached peoples in the world, and God has brought 80 to 100,000 into our small city. And, uh, and we rejoice. We love it. And, uh, and so, as you go about your daily life now, just have your eyes open to the nations that God has brought into your web of relationships or into your sphere and say, Lord, give me the joy of loving this sojourner, loving this, this immigrant and welcoming them in, even as you welcomed me into your family. I was an alien. I was a stranger. You welcomed me in. And, uh, and just to see what God does. So um, there's a biblical foundation. And I want to close with just a story of, um, that just rocked my world and expanded my mission's mindedness because I saw the value of it over the long haul, okay? Um, I was, uh, um, this, was, this was way back in 1990, but it's shaped me ever since. 
Back in 1990, uh, my wife and I were in our sanctuary, which, which was our old sanctuary was a lot like this beautiful one with the stained glass windows. And we were staying over here talking to people, and all of a sudden my wife noticed that on the other side, silhouetted against a stained glass window, was a couple that obviously were not wearing Western dress. We thought they were international students. So we wove our way through and went over to greet them. And they were middle-aged. They weren't, they weren't young. They were middle-aged. And I greeted them. I said, where are you from? And, and they said, uh, we're from Myanmar. And uh, missions pastor that I was, I didn't really know where Myanmar was. And, uh, and he saw the blank look on my face. He says, um, Burma. And I said, oh, okay, okay. And I said, well, what brings you to Minneapolis? And he just looked at me and he said, I have always wanted to come and visit my mother church. And I said, boy, that's great. You know, where's your mother church? And, uh, and he said, I'm standing right here. This is my mother church. And I said, I think you need to tell me more. And he said, a hundred years ago, so this was 1990 when I encountered this man, a hundred years ago, 1890, he said, Bethlehem Baptist Church sent to us Ola and Minnie Hansen. And uh, they were ordained at Bethlehem, and they were sent out by Bethlehem to us, to the Kachin people. He says, we are the Kachin people of Myanmar. And we are a small group of people, and we, we said, we were the wild people. And uh, um, when they came to us, um, there were, I think there were only seven known believers that were first converted in 1983 under the ministry. I don't know if you know your mission's history, but the first missionary sent out from America, North America was Adoniram Judson, sent out, I think, in 1806, 1809. And uh, he, went and, uh, he went through India. He met William Carey on the way, and then he went up to Burma. And, uh, and he tried to evangelize the Burmese people, which were predominantly the Muslim majority and uh, Buddhist. And uh, most of the Buddhists didn't listen to him, but the Karen people, another ethnic group, heard about them, or were, was, were listening to the gospel over, over his shoulder, and they were becoming Christians. And, uh, and so then the Karen people began to be missionaries in Myanmar, and they went from ethnic group to ethnic group, and they finally reached up to the Kachin people in 1877. And uh, the first missionaries died, and then in 1883, the first seven were baptized. And so in 1890, when Olin Minnie Hansen showed up, it was a virtually totally unreached people group. But something was starting, and they came and they wanted to translate the Bible into their language. But their language had never been written down. So they spent 37 years there, mastering their culture, learning their language, and developing an orthography, and translating the scriptures from Greek and Hebrew, Swedish, English, into Kachin. In 1927, they gave the complete Old and New Testament over to the Kachin people. The Kachin people had a story in their, their history, and, and it was passed down from generation to generation, that originally the creator God 
wrote a book and gave it to the Kachin people, and the Kachin had lost it. And but someday it was going to be restored to them. And so when they when they got this book, um, they said, "This is the book that the Creator God has given to us." And the church began to explode. Um, Olin and Minnie Hansen didn't know. They gave it over, and then they came home, and they died not knowing the fruit of their labor. But the word kept spreading and spreading and spreading. And so this, this man that I met in my, in my sanctuary that day, he said, I want you to know, he said, there are 600,000 Kachin, and over 500,000 of them are professing Christians. And of those 500,000, 250,000 are part of the Kachin Baptist Convention, and every one of them has a picture of Ola Hansen on their mantle. Go figure. So they invited me, as a representative of Bethlehem, the mother church, to come to their centennial celebration of Kachin literacy. So I was 1895, because, or 1995, because 1895 is when they decided what script to use. So that's the beginning of the, the literacy. So in 1995, I got to go to Myanmar, and I was in a, in a, a place where they hadn't let white faces in for 30 years because the uh, missionaries had all been kicked out in the 1960s. And so I got to stand before this Kachin group, and it was a, it was a group of 40,000 Kachins had gathered to celebrate the Bible coming into their language. And I got to greet them on behalf of their mother church. And... Uh, I've never been so celebrated for something I had nothing to do with. <laughs> and, uh, but it was just, and this is why I said it just rocked my world, because what I saw with my own eyes was the power of the Word of God and the power of missionary labors um, incarnating into their culture and teaching about Jesus in ways that speak to their heart, heart language. And so um, what happened after that, 1895, we got reconnected with them. They just trusted us because we were from Bethlehem Baptist Church. And so since 1995, we've been sending people back, uh, back there just about every year. I've been, I've been back there multiple times. And, uh, and we have just seen um, both... Uh, the exciting things about this church that's just massive and yet also the agony that like so many churches after generations nominalism creeps in and, and um, you know some syncretism creeps, um, just sneaks in and, and so they just asked us to come back and to help bring them back to the Bible and so we've been doing lots of teaching and training and and right now in our seminary at Bethlehem, we've got one of their leaders who's come to study, and he's, he's uh, being part of our, our ministry right now. And, uh, but again, it, what it did for me is it just showed me the long-term value of missionary labor and why it's so important that a church act like you guys are acting, that you are, you are faithful to your missionaries over the long haul. And that's a beautiful thing. Don't expect quick and sudden results. Sometimes those happen, but most often it's slow going, slow going. But the Word of God is powerful, and it's having its effect. So I just want to encourage you just, just to, to grow in this missions-mindedness, to read the Bible 
with missionary eyes, to look at your neighborhoods and your workplaces with missionary eyes, to be aware of what's happening in the world and look at it through missionary eyes. You listen to the evening news, um, and you just, it's just the tip of the iceberg, and they never report on what the most important thing is, which is the progress of the gospel. So learn about the progress of the gospel and the joys and sorrows of our brothers and sisters around the world and say, Lord, just use me however you are pleased and uh, be willing to go and be willing to stay. But whatever you do, do it all for the sake of the name and do it in a manner worthy of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are sovereign and you are good and that you have not left us in our sin but you have sent your son into this messy world and uh, you um, freely gave him up to us. Jesus, we praise you that you laid down your life for your sheep scattered around the world. And Lord, I pray that you would help us now just to love you most of all and to receive your gift freely without any works or any legalism. But Lord, we just praise you that you have given us the privilege of aligning our lives with your purpose um, and help us to do it in the way you've designed for each of us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.